As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're three best friends from Redlands, California. We grew up ghost hunting, exploring abandoned places, and general mischief which developed into this interest of all things dark and strange. So we decided we're going to explore paranormal phenomena, mysteries, true crime, intriguing history, and any other oddities that we want to share with each other and you. I'm Meg. I'm Jessica. I'm Nicole. And this is Dark Chatter. So... Welcome back, everybody. Happy 2021. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We made it oh. through 2020. Woo woo. <laughs> um, so on that high note, my segment's a massive downer. Um, I don't remember what how I came across this one, but fair warning, like I cried typing it. Like, oh, jeez, Meg. <laughs> Let me um, back. If you cry, I'm probably going to cry. I'm going to try not to cry. Uh, I got those tears out earlier. But this is this is a true story, uh, and it's it does touch on, uh, not just touch on, it focuses on child abuse um, in its worst form, just absolutely horrendous. And it's not just not that this makes it any worse. It's not just a single child or a single household. This is spans hundreds and hundreds of children over 11, uh, excuse me, over 111 years. And uh, so fair warning, uh, if this is a trigger point, this is a child abuse story. It is a massive downer. And the only reason I am covering it uh, is because the the children that lived through this and the survivors need a voice and their whole campaign as survivors is to give voices to those children who did not make it out of this scenario. And so I am going to shed light on the Florida's Dozer School for Boys legally sponsored torture. 
of 111 year history. The Dozer School for Boys has been known by several names. It opened in 1900 as a Florida State Reform School, 1,400 acres west of Tallahassee. Throughout its 111-year-old history, the school gained a reputation for abuse, beatings, rapes, torture, and even murder of students by staff. Despite periodic investigation, changes of leadership, and promises to improve, the allegations of cruelty and abuse continued. I'm t- Again, I'm saying this as a survival story for the kids that would come to be known as the White House Boys. So part of the story that I'm going to share was originally published in 2009 uh, with the headline, For Their Own Good. It was the first installment in what would become an award-winning series that resulted in the unearthing of dozens of previously unidentified graves. The school would be closed in 2011. However, this is the story of the White House Boys. And this is, I'm going to share some direct quotes from this For Their Own Good article. And again, it's disturbing. So bear with us. This is where the tears and everything came because of these um, memories. Um, From the 2009 article For Their Own Good, boys were dragged to the White House in ones and twos and threes. Sometimes there was a line outside and sometimes a white dog kept watch. The boys, now men, remember the same things. Blood on the walls, bits of lip or tongue on the pillow, the smell of urine and whiskey, the way the bed springs sang with each blow, the way they cried out for Jesus or mama, the grinding of the old metal fan that muffled their cries, and the one-armed man who swung the strap. They remember walking into the dark little building on the campus of the Florida School for Boys in bare feet and white pajamas, afraid they'd never walk out. Bite that pillow, lay down, hold onto the rail, and don't make a sound. They could hear the strap coming. It started with the pivot and shuffle of boots on the concrete. The strap hit the wall, then the ceiling, then the thighs and buttocks and back, and it felt like an explosion. For 109 years, this is where Florida has sent bad boys. Boys have been sent here for rape or assault, yes, but also for skipping school, smoking cigarettes, or running from broken homes. Some were tough, some were confused and afraid, all were treading through their formative years in the custody of the state. They were as young as five and as old as 20, and they needed to be reformed. It was for their own good. Now come the men with nightmares and scars on their backsides, carrying 50 years of wreckage, ruined marriages, prison time, and meanness and smoldering anger. Now comes a state investigation into unmarked graves, a lawsuit against dying old man. Now come the questions. How could this happen and what should be done? One of the survivors, author of The White House Boys and American Tragedy, contributing author of The Chicken Soup for the Soul, and founder of the White House Boys Foundation, Roger Dean Kisser. My story and stories of some 300 to 500 other men contained on this on the website that he published will give readers some idea of the terrible, abusive, and bloody horrors that were suffered by these men while they were children. Children, some as young as five or six, who ran away from physically, sexually, or verbally abusive homes, yet were labeled incorrigible children by the juvenile court system of Florida. 
Under the court orders, these children were sent away to physically work on state-owned farms located in the, on the Florida School for Boys at Mariana. In addition, the same children were used by the local Mariana-Jackson County community working on ranches and unloading railroad cars for as long as 12 hours a day without any pay whatsoever. That in itself was terrible, but nothing compared to what happened behind closed doors at the institution. Many boys disappeared during the night and were never heard from again. Now the bodies are being discovered around the campus. When driving onto the campus, one would think it looked like a college campus. Beautiful buildings, manicured lawns, a swimming pool, a football field, hospital, dining hall, and at Christmas, thousands of cars visited the facility to see the hundreds of decorations and thousands upon thousands of colored lights which decorated the main drive. Yet all this beauty, there were brutal, horrendous, and merciless bloody beatings, molestations, rapes, murders taking place in a thick cement wall building known as the White House. There were many nights when young boys were taken from their cottages screaming and crying and were raped by the staff. Many of these boys never returned to their cottages and we never heard from them again. Our investigation has never found any records, social security, criminal employment tax, or property ownership of the information regarding any of these boys in later years. They simply disappeared. Some were as young as five. This again is still the recounting of Roger. So you guys okay? Yeah. Okay. They just, uh, were, okay. I arrived at the school on June 3rd, 1959. Upon entering the school, I was rather taken uh, by all the beauty and neatness of the campus. Though somewhat scared, I was not as scared as most kids sent to school because I was already institutionalized and used to such an environment. But I could hardly believe my eyes when I saw the large swimming pool, football field, and the gymnasium. This had to be much better than the orphanage. Look at all this stuff here, I thought. This has to be better than only having one broken swing and a roller skate with only three wheels. But little did I know, as a great smile spread across my face, that the devil was hiding behind every tree, every building, and even behind the blades of manicured grass. And little did I know that America had its own concentration camp for little boys right here in good old U.S. of A. It's a bloody, horrible, and never-ending nightmare that many of us still suffer even to this day, some 50 years later. After a vicious, vicious and brutal, bloody beating at the White House, I swore that one day I would expose what was happening at the facility. And that I did. Some 50 years later, I wrote a book. The White House Boys, an American Tragedy, which, with the help of other men who were abused at the school, closed down the campus for good. The University of South Florida is now on the grounds hunting for the bodies of the boys who were killed, buried, or simply dumped in the North Florida swamps. At the present, 96 bodies have been located. This will not, this will not include many bodies that were taken into the swampland areas and dumped to be possibly eaten by alligators. There were stories of boys beaten to death at the White House torture chamber, and then their bodies taken to the incinerator and burned with the daily trash. The ashes were then cleared out and taken to the peanut field to be used as fertilizers. A few of the employees who did have the guts and fortitude to come forward after all these years called the beatings cruel, brutal, totally inhumane, and criminal in nature. I guess one had to actually be there to see the boys' Levi's split at the seams, after 20 or 30 swats with a heavy weighted leather and metal strap. 
I guess you had to be there at the hospital to see the boy's underwear, which had been beaten into their skin, be surgically removed by the school nurse and aging physician. Yes, one would have had to been there to really understand the horror and cruelty and brutality of it all. So there are hundreds of White House boys that have come forward now and shared their experiences and their survival stories. And that was where I started watching some of the videos that they, when they were interviewed and when all of this was coming to light. And I just, I, I couldn't help it. I started crying right away. I mean, these are men who are my dad's age that are crying for injustices that were done to them as little kids when they should have been protected. And, ugh, it's just, these men lived through horrible, horrible things, but they're speaking out about what happened because they want to voice and bear witness for those who didn't survive. So another survivor story, Jerry Cooper, he says, you didn't know when it was coming. There, These were not spankings. These were beatings, brutal beatings. Cooper is now 67 and he spent, he was sent to the Florida school for boys in 16, 1961. He'd been running away from home and hitchhiking when he was picked up by an AWOL Marine driving a stolen car. A county judge charged him with car theft and sent him to the school. Some of the kids like him were charged with crimes, but Cooper says others were there for running away from home or just because they didn't have families. He witnessed and received brutal beatings by the administration there. A lot of orphans were there that did not have places at the time. And they were sent to Mariana and they weren't there for any crimes whatsoever. But we had many, many boys who were there for smoking at school and that were incorrigible. We weren't bad kids. We might have needed some help in some respect, but that's that wasn't the place to find it. I'll tell you that right now. Cooper says he did his best to stay out of trouble. But after several weeks, he learned about the beatings firsthand. He said that school staff got him out of bed at 2 a.m and took him to the White House, where he says they threw him on the bed, tied his feet, and began to hit him with a leather strap. As incredible as it may sound, Cooper's story is not uncommon. There are dozens of White House boys with similar tales of beatings they received at the school in the 1950s and 60s. Several years ago, they began telling their stories in newspaper accounts and TV reports. Florida's former governor, Charlie Crist, ordered an, a state investigation into the alleged allegations of abuse and torture and deaths at the school. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement interviewed the White House boys and former staff said that it couldn't find enough evidence to support the allegation. It all boils down to a civil liability. Uh, Roger says. find enough evidence if they literally found bodies. So that's what Roger's saying now is it boils down to a civil civil liability. The former governor They didn't want anybody to be able to have factual evidence that would make them pay for these, what I consider to be crimes, is what Roger said. So basically, it was a cover-up. Like, you had this this school of death operating for over 100 years, and there are multiple um, investigations into it, and you just covered it up. You didn't do anything about it. So I would say... That's the biggest concern and battle cry coming from the White House boys is that Florida knew people knew that this was happening and they did nothing. 
So the state reports also found no evidence indicating a staff member was responsible for any of the students' deaths. However, Roger, he said he can't accept any of the state's conclusions. There are just too many stories, he says. I know of one that I personally saw die in a bathtub that had been beaten to half to death. I thought he'd been mauled by the dogs because I thought he had ran. I never did find out the true story on that. There was a boy I saw who was dead come out of the dryer. They had put him in one of those large industrial dryers. State investigators said that the school records, that using school records, they were able to identify 31 former students interned in the school cemetery. Records show 50 other boys also died at the school with no indication where they are buried. So there's a cemetery, like this pathetic little cemetery on the grounds. And I say pathetic just because it's in no way does any of these kids any justice. They're just um, pipe made crosses, like not like not PVC pipe, but metal pipe and like no names, no, no markers of who's under them. But there are 31 crosses in the cemetery. Um, So. The families of those boys, they they can't even begin to say, like, where is my ancestor buried, you know? Um, So here's some of the reports that I found into, like, investigation into when the um, first allegations came up. And you guys, the first one was in 1903, three years after the school opened. An inspection reported that children at the school were commonly kept in leg irons. And according to the 2001 interim report by the University of South Florida, which was commissioned to investigate the cemetery and burials, the school was investigated by the state six times during its first 13 years of operation. So that is just one reason why the state of Florida and the governing boards would never want this to come to light because somebody royally fucked up. Like this is so screwed up. Um, a fire in the dormitory in 1914 killed six students and two staff members. Eleven students were recorded to have having died in 1918 in the Spanish flu, flu epidemic, but weren't named. So I actually did some more research into that, into that 1914 fire. Some witness accounts and some other reports from that time say that the six students that were killed was because they were locked in their door, in their rooms, like, cells basically and staff members had gone into town to like drink and party and they were basically left to burn alive because nobody was there to take care of them or help them get out of the burning building and there's no record of who died they don't have the record of who died in that fire um some of them were identified um and i believe their bodies are part of the 31 in the cemetery. Because those are ones that they couldn't hide. Exactly. That's the only reason they're in the cemetery. And, and that they could say, oh, well, it's not our fault because it right. was a fire. Yeah. Recorded burials on Boot Hill Cemetery took place from 1914 to 1952. So probably the first kids to be buried in that 31 plot cemetery were the six fire students because it's the same year. Yeah. Um, And then in 1968, the Florida governor at the time said after visits to the school, he found overcrowding, poor conditions, and that somebody should have blown the whistle a long time ago. Well, hello, they did, but your frickin' state kept covering it up. So 
At this time, the school housed 564 boys, some for offenses as minor as school truancy or running away from home. Uh, the White House was then closed. The White House, so only one little building where all of the horrors happened on this campus, was closed in 1967. Officially, corporal punishment. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. At the school was banned in August 1968. One of the survivor videos that I saw, you guys, was this guy, and he said one of their punishments was to be thrown out into the woods and have to dig the graves for the other students, that they were told to dig uh, four feet down and the length of a boy. And so... They they, had to help cover up the crimes. Exactly. And so the investigation being done... Well, I'm pretty sure it's concluded by now, but by the um, University of South Florida, it's it's like an archaeology archaeological dig at this point, and they've got um, the different unidentified graves exposed, and are doing facial reconstruction to try to figure out who some of these boys were. But some obviously some of the remains are are really poorly. Um, preserved but and some plus, of them a lot of them are just they were just they were orphans so they literally were sent there because they didn't have anywhere else to go so nobody's exactly. gonna be able to say who they are everybody would have forgotten them by now which is super sad but that's why they've been able to get away with it for so long because those are boys that people didn't even want to deal with like even if they did have family like if the family was okay with them going there like they were ready to just write them off at that point mm-hmm. as bad kids. Um, there is a story of um, part along with part of the investigation, the, the grounds, once it was closed, were going to be donated or dedicated for like new buildings and things like have the school torn down and industrial growth take place. And one of the families of a boy that died there, filed an injunction because his body hadn't been found yet. They hadn't found his uncle's remains yet. So that's where the 
University of Southern South Florida stepped in and kind of took over as, as a research project to identify all the remains on that property, 1,400 acres. You don't know how many bodies are buried all around. So despite that now they've been finding more and more bodies when there's only a 31 cross grave, but now they've found 98 that in 98 bodies. I, I just think that there's so much more that has to be researched into this. And I, I know that um, one of the articles I read, and I really didn't want to, to do too many of the survivor stories because it was just the same over and over of these beatings that took place. They were able to identify the two staff members who were responsible for the White House beatings for like the, the main majority of them, just these two men that would drag these kids out of bed and beat them. And originally the White House was set. So originally the school was segregated, obviously the first parts of the 1900s. So one half of this building were for the colored kids and one half of the building was for the white boys to be beaten. After uh, things were desegregated, obviously, that was when they just started lining up, up, up by mass. But one of the men who carried out parts of it is already deceased. The other guy is still alive, and he's finally facing. I don't believe that he faced actual justice, because in this next part, I'll tell you guys some of the um, legal snafus that the White House boys have come across. But still, they were able to identify the the main guy that did the whippings and he used one of those leather um you know how uh like barber shops would do the the sharpening of the blades the old school, yeah like, yeah big thick leather straps like in sweeney todd yes <laughs> i knew so, you were gonna say that <laughs> so i guess and it sounds like a well, movie. You know, I mean, it's not like I frequent barber shops. That's really the only place I've ever seen that is in Sweeney Todd. <laughs> but you don't have your your beard shaved daily. <laughs> so on October 21st, 2008, men of the White House boys returned to the school campus for the first time. Uh the article reads that the last time they had stepped on this sprawling campus, they were fresh-faced punks with the world before them. Now their hair was gray and their faces sagged. Their backs ached from a night in motel beds, and they carried pictures of children and grandchildren in their wallets. Um, so this is some of this is recounting some of the survivors from that day. Dick Cohen flew in from Baltimore, where he was an electrical contracting company, owns an electrical contracting company. The 65-year-old was tormented by the memory of seeing a boy being stuffed into an industrial dryer. Next to him stood Michael O. McCarthy, a writer and political activist from Costa Rica who was beaten so badly he was treated at the school infirmary. To his left was Roger Kisser, a chicken soup for the sole contributor who had driven down from Brunswick, Georgia, bent on retribution. On the end was a quiet man named Robert Straley, who sells glow lights and carnival novelties. He drove up from Clearwater. He had been having recurring nightmares of a man sitting on his bed. And these men now called themselves the White House Boys. In the past, they had each searched online for information about the Florida School for Boys for something that suggested they weren't alone. They weren't the only ones burdened with their experiences from the school. They approached the state seeking official acknowledgement that they had been abused, hoping to find some resolution along the way. 
There, they found a friend in the State Department of Juvenile Justice. He set up a cere- this ceremony to, the clo- to close and seal the White House. He even ordered a plaque to be mounted on the building. The plaque reads, in memory of the children who passed these doors, we acknowledge their tribulations and offer our hope that we have found some measure of peace. May this building stand as a reminder of the need to remain vigilant in protecting our children as we help them seek a brighter future. The White House boys got a lawyer and filed a suit against several state agencies. More than 200 men signed on the people who abused them. So these are the men that were most responsible. R.W. Hatton was already dead, but Troy Tidwell, the one-armed man, was still alive. He's named in the suit. Governor Charlie Chris called an investigation for the graves, and the Florida Government Department of Law Enforcement uh, started pulling records asking for asking questions out of the remaining bodies found on on the campus all but one was able to be identified through the archaeological study so that is the story of the white house boys and the florida dozer school for boys my sources were the npr.org the whitehouseboys.com and jacksonville.com Yeah. And unfortunately, like this isn't like the only story that's like that. I know it's really screwed up. But again, I wanted to do this story because I felt like these boys who are now men like deserve some recognition for what they went through. Like they were up. They were supposed to be taken care of. They were supposed to be protected and Florida failed them. And I'm sorry to call out Florida, but. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. I so how just, did it even slip through the cracks like that? Because you're talking about like one of the governors had gone to visit and he said how horrible it was. Like, and there were six investigations and like, I don't understand how nothing came of that. So in one article I read, um, because I was wondering the same thing. I was like, what the hell? Like these aren't low level officials finding these cases. Um, the, Investigations that were called in the later years, like after the 60s, reported that because of the uh, socially accepted uh, means of punishment in those times, that this kind of abuse wouldn't even be labeled abuse at that time. Like it wasn't criminal then to whip a boy. Like it's so disgusting, the, the ways that they found to excuse this behavior they came up with everything from under the sun of how this was not their fault but it 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 boils down to is florida was trying to cover its ass because it this wasn't the only school where this happened this it was hundreds of years of torture and abuse and yeah they're trying to get out of owing all of these survivors uh compensation i mean they should at least pay for mental health services health insurance because these guys have you know injuries that yeah. Um, one, one of the videos that I watched, I mean, they've even made a movie about this, you guys. One video that I watched of one of the survivors, he says that he still wakes up, like he's in his sixties and he still wakes up from night terrors sometimes because of the amount of times he was woken up in the middle of the night, dragged into that white house and beaten. Um, they said that the, the ratio between the colored kids and the white boy uh, kids that were killed was way skewed on that. The colored kids that also, sorry, off track. That also was one of the reasons somebody cited that the colored boys weren't to be buried in the, in the regular cemetery. So that's one 
excuse of why there were bodies outside of the designated cemetery grounds and were just buried without markers and um just kind of thrown in the woods. That's ridiculous. I, absolutely. This is it's this whole thing there's videos upon videos, hours of footage and um court films and these guys standing together and saying, Hey, what you allowed to happen to us was, was wrong and is criminal. And Florida is just like, Oh, oh, how do I cover my ass? And I'm really happy to see that a lot of these guys went on to live somewhat successful lives, even after having struggled with the prison system. Um, The Roger, the founder, he's a contributing author of the chicken noodle soup for the soul books. It's also really crazy to me. I mean, this is like a rhetorical question, but how can those people like doling out this abuse? Like what's their trip? Like what kind of damage do you have to like be able to put a child in a dryer? Like what is your motivation? Like how, what, what? I mean, they're pretty much serial killers and they're getting away with it. Like they're being pretty much told it's okay. Like they found the perfect job. Yeah. And that was, um, one of the, um, things that the White House boys were calling for was to have more screening, more training, more, um, uh, vigilance on juvenile staff members that, you know, even in current juvenile facilities that, you know, put them through a background test, put them through, uh, uh, mental, screening because yeah if you want to be a serial killer of course like nicole said you found the perfect job where you're given free access to your victims yeah and unsupervised children the the kids that nobody really cares for because they're troublemakers and you would think even like because you mentioned like an infirmary and a hospital like on campus you would think there'd be like one nurse or one doctor or someone who would think like this is wrong. Like this abuse is, is more than, you know, just a belt whipping, you know, and, and would report it or say something. Well, like, they did. And that's why he went and investigated. But like, like, like Meg said, like they just covered everything up. Yeah. Cause ultimately it falls on the government, Florida, whether it be the law enforcement uh, department or the numerous departments that, oversaw this crap like you there's no it goes all the way to the top so of course they're going to try to cover it up and try to make excuses of like oh well it was acceptable at the time and we were segregated so we didn't you know bury the colored kids with the rest of them like it's all bullshit and excuse my language this one really got me fired up and I watched the videos of these men that said that they would go after the beatings and just have to stand in the shower and let the water like rinse their underwear out of their wounds. Yeah. How did a, a somebody who's in the medical profession not find the empathy to be a whistleblower? But it's, I don't, I don't know. There is no, I mean, there's no answer for, what goes on in wicked minds. That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. So this one, uh, you know, giving a voice to these men who were never given a voice as children. 
White House boys, I hope you find peace. Murderers and rapists, I hope very bad things upon you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So have you guys ever heard of the sisters, the twin sisters, Sabina and Ursula Erickson? Yes. And they're crazy. Okay. I have not. Indulge me. A really crazy story. And I just, I don't even remember what I looked up to find them. But I basically, my uh, sources were a YouTube video of 60 Minutes Australia, a BBC network documentary called Madness in the Fast Lane and Wikipedia. Ursula Erickson and Sabina Erickson are 40-year-old Swedish twin sisters who came to national attention in the United Kingdom in May 2008. The twins had been in Ireland before traveling to the UK and boarding a bus for London in Liverpool. Their odd behavior after exiting the bus at a service station on the M6 motorway caused the driver not to allow them back on board. He says they were acting erratic and asked them to calm down and take the next bus. Later, surveillance camera cameras capture the women walking in what looks like an enclosed median on the freeway. So I've never seen any, like, uh, this was all in the video, and I've never seen anything like this in America, but basically what it looks like is like a small dirt path um, with like a relatively short iron gate enclosure that runs through the middle of the freeway. I don't know what its purpose is. <laughs> Seems kind of dangerous. Apparently it is. But anyway, these women were on this path and just all of a sudden they jump over the side of the enclosure and run directly into traffic. And you see them literally that. Yes, Megan, that was my first reaction as well. What like, the heck? What? What drugs were they on? Getting there. So miraculously, they both survive, okay? As highway workers, the police, and a small television crew show up on the side of the incident, they both run into traffic again. So here's a little bit of a crazy part, too, is that so the police happen to be filming this documentary like kind of like the show cops, but better. Uh, so they have a television crew with them. So they get really good footage of this incident and it's crazy. So, uh, the highway workers were actually the first responders. They, you know, see this happen. They're trying to contain these women, um, as the police and the television crew show up. Uh, but I, as I said, they get away from these first responders and run into traffic. Were they naked? Don't they like punch? They're like punching the cops and stuff like to get away. Yeah. Like basically the, one of the highway workers had grabbed Ursula like by um a, her jacket and she literally like wiggled out of the jacket to get away from him. And then, so Ursula goes first and Sabina follows shortly after uh, the camera catches all this happening, and you can actually see Ursula's, like, green sweater and her arm, like, rotating with the tire of a semi-truck. Like, like, if you can watch this video, I really recommend it. It's so shocking. It's not, luckily, it's not gory. It's not, like, very yeah. bloody or anything, like I was afraid it was going to be. Um, but I'm super sensitive, and I was able to watch it. So if you think you can, I, I suggest watching it. 
so Ursula ends up breaking both legs and having severe internal injuries. But as the first responders, who I said were highway workers, are trying to tend to her after she's basically smashed, she's trying to get up and leave. She's very combative. She's aggressive. And she even is spitting at these people who are trying to help her. Okay. Spoiler alert. I have a theory. No, not yet. Oh, no whole, theories. Whole theories. Oh. Okay. No, they're not fairies, Megan. Sabina ends up smashing into the windshield of a car and is unconscious for a little while. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But then she wakes up and also turns, tries to run away from the uh, first responders. And she actually succeeds while punching a police officer in the process of her escape. She then runs again into traffic on the other side of the freeway. <laughs> the third time. The third time this woman has run into traffic on a freeway. Eventually, though, she is sedated and arrested. Police at the scene who were being interviewed for this just kept saying how they had like this superhuman strength. It took like four or five people to arrest her, like how bizarre and inexplicable this whole situation was. The twins can be heard saying strange things like, where's Paul? At one time, the one of the ladies pops up and she says, where's Paul? And then she hear you can hear one of the twins telling the other one, they'll take your organs. So obviously, like they they're out of their minds. Um, Side note, at this point, it was said in the 16 minutes piece that the sisters were not high or drunk. Because my first thought, too, was PCP. Like if you have superhuman strength, you have all this adrenaline running through, you can't really feel pain. But apparently that was not the case. My theory is going to be correct. I know it. I'm going to be right. I'm going to be right. They were both eventually taken to the hospital where doctors fought to save Ursula and do, although she had spent, had to spend months in the hospital. But miraculously, Sabina walks out of the hospital with no serious injuries just five hours later. At this time, police say she is a completely different person than the one they brought in. She's calm. She's collected, not erratic at all, and doesn't even need to be handcuffed as she's placed into the police vehicle. 
Sabina is charged with assaulting police and trespassing on the motorway. The criminal investigation of Sabina revealed that she lived in Ireland with her partner and children and no prior criminal history or mental illness. Ursula had been living in America and had been visiting Sabina in Ireland. They disappeared for a few days, and then that's when they showed up on the bus on their way to London, but no one knows where they were headed or why they were headed there. Two days after her arrest, Sabina was released. Out on the street, she strikes up a conversation with a friendly local named Glenn Hollinshead, who offers her a meal and a room for the night. Glenn's best friend, Peter, had his suspicions of Sabina, being that it seemed like she was trying to hide from someone. Well, Peter ended up being right in his suspicions to not trust Sabina, because less than a day later, Glenn is stabbed to death. Surveillance cameras caught Sabina running out of Glenn's house with a large hammer, which she started hitting herself with. A passing motorist sees this and stops to try stops to try to stop her from hurting herself. Sabina is combative and hits the man in the back of the head with a roof tile that she just so happens to have in her pocket. Just in case. Yeah, you know, the hammer wasn't enough. Sabina somehow overpowers him and gets away and runs to the middle of an overpass and jumps off into traffic. This is her MO, right? This time she fractured both of her legs and her skull. But once again, she survives and spends three months in the hospital. After her release from the hospital, she is charged with the murder of Glenn Hollinshead. During the murder investigation, Sabina says no comment to every question asked of her. She never offers any explanation for anything that happened to Glenn or for her behavior on the motorway. The court case becomes complicated. A number of psychiatrists state that Sabina was mentally ill when she repeatedly ran into the motorway and when she killed Glenn. But what, but exactly what that mental illness was left doctors baffled. However, one of Britain's leading forensic psychiatrists believes she had induced delusional disorder, which essentially means madness in two people, where one person of the two has a recognized psychotic illness and the other person is infected by it and takes on the abnormal beliefs of the person who is ill. Before you do or something. Yes. That's what it's called. Because that would make sense because they're twins. They probably had like that connection, that twin connection. That so connection. They're, yeah, they're probably more susceptible to it. He also believes that like the boundaries of who is who were blurred to them. That makes sense. But the defense argued that it was Ursula who had the mental illness and infected Sabina. Prosecutors disagreed and said that Sabina had acute polymorphic disorder, which is like temporary insanity. In the end, Sabina pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five years in prison. In the last twist in this case, many experts believe that both Sabina and Ursula are no longer mentally ill. Ursula now living happily in America and Sabina in Europe. But what they can't predict is what happens when the sisters are reunited. Seriously, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> oh. MG. So are you buying that? Are you buying that there's, there could be madness in two people and, and one infects the other and then when they get together, they're crazy and when they're apart, they're fine? 
I, I mean, I've seen it in like criminal minds and stuff too. And I have heard about this case, but, um, I mean, it's usually, I don't know if it's like, cause there's a lot of like partnerships where like one's the dominant one and one's the submissive one. So I guess it's kind of like that, but there's like an extra level because there's like, but I mean, to be like a serial killer, like duo or a couple, you both need to be crazy anyway. So I don't know. Right. Right. And then Sabina wasn't even with Ursula when she killed Glenn. Yeah. They're just like, they're like a whole new level of crazy. Demon possession. What'd you say? Demon possession. Oh, that's oh, Okay. Um, totally uh, obvious. Like you have to watch the video. They are, they're, they're so crazy and erratic. Yes. Except Except when Sabina's being released from the hospital, she's totally normal. She's, like, flirting with the cop. Like, she's just... It's so odd. That's my theory from the beginning. They're not fairies. Although, in Ireland, there are some myths and mythological creatures that could cause this. Will-o'-the-wisps, blah, blah, blah. But demon possession, hands down, my conclusion. Well, honestly, I had never even heard about the madness in two people theory. Like, I. I didn't know that was a real psychiatric um, diagnosis, but apparently it is. There's another one that is like um, two sisters and they were like servants for this family. They were called, huh, I just remember their name, but then I just forgot it. Um, but they were like two younger sisters and they just went crazy and killed the family that they worked for one day. And but like one of them was like the dominant one, and one was the more submissive mm-hmm. one. But um, oh, the Papine sisters, I think it was in Fra- in France, and um, they were they think they were also like having like a, a relationship together, even though they were I think they were sisters. That's so that's another issue. <laughs> so I have never heard of this. That's really fascinating. And I think we should do more research on it. Yeah. And like, for me, like, I understand, I kind of more understand, like, with the, like, the whole dominant personality of one person kind of like convincing someone else to maybe like hurt, kill, stab someone else who has been, maybe they've been wronged by. But the courage that it would take to run into run. traffic like that, just Repeatedly. because your sister did or something, like, it's yeah. Like, and in the video, it's crazy to watch them because they want to do it. Like, there's no yeah. hesitation. Oh. Like, that's yeah. their main goal. Like, they want to be out in that traffic for some reason. Yeah. So, like, I mean, first time you watch it, like, I was just, I didn't think I could get more shocked. But they just yeah. kept doing they it. They keep going. So, they're trying to kill themselves, no? I don't know. I, I don't know because, I mean, then they go back to their uh, homes living happily normalized with children and husbands, apparently like they're, I mean, if they really wanted to commit suicide, they could do it, you know, much more effective ways, I guess. They're possessed by demons (sighs) or a single, a single demon that was feeding off of the two of them. But uh, okay. And then the other thing I was thinking, I, I respect law enforcement. Kudos to them. But after the second time, these crazies run back into traffic. Wouldn't you just let them? Well, no, just be like, because right, they're putting you're, you're on your own. They're putting those other drivers at risk. Yeah, 
because everyone like slams on their brakes to like, you know, stop. And then, you know, someone gets rear-ended and. Well, and plus imagine being one of the people that hits these people. Like you'd still feel guilty even if that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. So like one of the wins, so when Sabina hit the windshield of a car, the um driver, she's a woman, she came out and she's like, you know, laying, you know, Sabina is unconscious at the time. And of course the woman is like, worried about her and terrified and you know of course she doesn't want that on her soul she killed someone all right i'll give you that but that is insane what was the disorder called again the uh foyer do it's i think it's f-o-l-i-e and then another word is d-e-u-x googling it which they also call it induced delusional disorder that yeah that's like, I guess, the textbook term. But so, I mean, was any research done into these women to see how they reacted? Like, how were they together as children? I don't think they had. I've never seen anything saying anything about their life other than like that they had families and where they were from. Like pretty much what Jessica said is as much as they say about their past. Yeah, because Sabina wouldn't, she didn't offer up anything, no explanation. She just kept saying no comment. Like, and I mean, her life was on the line to go to, you know, prison for life or whatever. And I mean, she doesn't go into prison, not for life. But even with that, like, she wouldn't say, offer any explanation. And the other sister, what was her name again? Ursula. And she just got out of the hospital and went home and no baby. Yeah, she was, so she was. Uh, at the hospital in England for like three months. And then after that, after she was released, she went back to America. And can I just say this whole time, <laughs> first thing I thought when it was a twin named Ursula <laughs> on Friends, Phoebe's evil twin sister is Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. And they're blonde like them too. <laughs> I, I mean, as from a psychology standpoint to clearly say, oh, these women have this uh, disorder, I, I would need to see research. I need to see their childhood records. What were they like before this visit? Where did they go? Did they go into the woods? Did they wander off the path? I mean, where did they get possessed? It, it is all a mystery. I heard they they're, uh, they originated in Woolpit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the green had just subsided by that. Yeah. I, well, you did say she was wearing like a green jacket, right? Ooh, you're onto something. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, I am going to follow up on this. I made notes. Maybe next episode I will talk more about this disorder because I'm yeah. Maybe, right now. maybe cover another case that that it that it's part of. Or uh, yeah, uh, you have me just salivating. I'm so curious about this. And maybe um maybe other people who have had it are twins as well. That'd be interesting to know. I know Jessica was wanting to cover some like there's quite a few interesting twin cases and Jessica was said she was kinda interested in that, so I wasn't really surprised when she said she was covering the story. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Um I want like I know this is probably uh sick and twisted or malpractice or whatever, but I want to get these two back together in a controlled environment. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, that put in some like controlled stimulants, like yeah. a car or something and just see what happens. Let them go wild. Like the hunger games, put them in a, uh, uh, an arena. 
just to poke and prod at them. Well, back. apparently they don't hurt each other, though. I know, but it's like wild animals in cages. You just want to watch and see what the hell they're going to yeah. do. Just observe. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe Megan can uh, follow up on that if she wants. Oh, I'm going to be reading about it today. Delusional. <laughs> yeah, this is great. War do. Thank you for my evening reading. You're welcome. <laughs> Nicole, what do you have for us today? Okay, so I'm going to be covering um, the story of Blanche Monnier. And this takes place in the late 1800s in France. Um, so Blanche was part of a... Um, she was a French socialite from a wealthy family. Um, they were well-respected, um, a well-respected conservative family in, so again, this happens in France. So please excuse my pronunciation of, or mispronunciation of some of these words. Um, so they were a family from Poitiers, Vienne, France. Um, and Blanche's father, Emile Monnier, had passed away. He had been the director of an arts um, facility in town, and he had accumulated a fortune. So after he had passed away, they had lived in a mansion, and um, the money that he left was enough for um, his wife, Madame Monnier, and their children to live off of um, the inheritance. Um, Blanche's mother, Madame Louise Monnier, was known for her charitable work around the city, and she actually received an award from the Committee of Good Works. Um, Blanche herself was described by acquaintances as gentle and good-natured. She was also known to be very beautiful with large eyes and thick, dark hair. Um, she attracted many potential suitors for marriage. Um, she lived with her mother and her brother, Marcel Monnier, and Marcel, her brother, was a lawyer. So then in 1874, at the age of 25, uh, Blanche fell in love with a lawyer who was a few years older than she was. And since he wasn't rich or successful, she hid the relationship from her mother, considering they were from like a wealthy, well-to-do family. So she would wait until her mother and her brother would fall asleep, and then she would sneak out to see her boyfriend. And then one day, she just disappeared. Her mother told people around town that she had um, just disappeared one night, and she and Marcel mourned, but they essentially had to continue on with their lives. So years go on. She's still missing. As far as I can tell, there wasn't really much of an investigation onto what happened to her. Um, but so 10 years after she goes missing, um, the lawyer that she had intended to marry, he passed away. And then 25 years after she disappeared, authorities received an anonymous letter. So this is in 1901 that they received this letter. And the letter said, Monsieur, Monsieur, how do you say that? Monsieur. Monsieur. Monsieur, Attorney General. I have the honor to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence. I speak of a spinster who is locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half starved and living on a putrid litter for the past 25 years, in a word, in her own filth. Police initially had some misgivings about this letter because this family was wealthy, well-known. They had a spotless reputation. Um, 
her mother, Madame Monnier, was known for her, all of her charitable works. And her brother, Marcel, had excelled in school and he was a well-respected lawyer. Um, so when the police arrived at 21 Rue de la Visitation, oh my God, I said that so horrible, whatever, um, to investigate. Um, so nobody answered the door when they were there to inv- investigate, um, but they did see the curtains moving, so they knew that somebody was home, and then they did also see Madame Monnier peek, peek out of the window. Well, were they so, not there at visitation hours? <laughs> whatever. <laughs> okay, so they knew that she was home and she wasn't answering the door, so they decided to break into the home at this point because they felt that she they she knew that she was why why they were there. So they searched the mansion, they searched As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Every room. And then they finally got to um, the attic door. Um, it was padlocked shut from the outside. Um, but they could tell that there was a horrible smell emanating from that door. Oh my God. So they broke the door down, but it was completely pitch black inside. The window shutters had been nailed shut. Um so they couldn't see what was happening, what was inside the room. So they broke down the shutters, and once the room was lit, they found a skeleton-like Blanche. She was still alive. Her mom had her the whole time. Oh, uh-huh. my God. So at this point, she was 50 years old, and she hadn't seen any daylight for the past 25 years of her imprisonment. <gasps> yes. Just so, because she was gonna marry a like a uh-huh on blue blood. That that was the motive, just because she didn't like her boyfriend. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so she was she was there. Um, she was found completely naked. Um, when they opened the shutters, she hid her face and her body under a filthy blanket because she hadn't seen any sunlight in 25 years, so she was extremely sensitive to it. Um, but um, she was found 
on a decaying straw mattress that was covered in old food and feces with bugs all around. Oh, gosh. Yeah, she was chained to the bed, and the only food that she received were what scraps could be shoved under the door. Oh, my gosh. So was her brother still living at the house, too? He knew also? Yes, oh. I'll get to that. Yeah. Okay, so, wait. One- the brother and the mother hooking up because this just sounds way too twisted. <laughs> so um, one officer described the scene. The unfortunate woman was laying completely naked on a rotten straw mattress. All around her was formed a sort of crust made from excrement, fragments of meat, vegetables, fish, and rotten bread. We also saw oyster shells and bugs running across Mademoiselle Monnier's bed. The air was so unbreathable. The odor given off by the room was so rank that it was impossible for us to stay any longer to proceed with our investigation. So it smelled so bad in there, the cops couldn't even like handle it. Like they would have to take breaks. They would only be able to be in the room for a couple minutes before they'd have to switch out. Um, but she lived in that room for 25 years. Jeez. So when they found her, she only weighed 55 pounds. Oh, my God. So um, they took her to the Hotel Dieu Hospital, and doctors initially thought that she wasn't going to make it because she was so starved. Um, So while the nurses were bathing her, she kept commenting on how nice it was to be clean and how thankful she was to be free. Yeah. The whole time that they were bathing her, she, and, you know, caring for her, she was very nice to everybody. She wasn't, um, didn't seem like crazy or anything like that. So the motive be- behind her imprisonment is, um, her mother was so angered at her daughter's intention to marry a quote, penniless lawyer that she locked her in a tiny dark room in the attic of their home until Blanche would agree to break off the relationship. But Blanche never agreed to break off the relationship. Go Blanche. Holy. Girl, ain't no man worth that, though. Right? Um, Defy the mama. Sorry, mama. Your romance crap, Megan. Right? (laughs) No man is worth that. Sorry. And honestly, um, there was mention that it might have been the books that she read because, you know, in the 1800s, there were a lot of romance novels, like most of the great literature is a romance. And she was really into that. So they think that that kind of like fueled her, her defiance for her mother, like true love preva- always prevails kind of thing. Um, so, Megan, that may be not healthy. Wait, what? <laughs> Say that no. again, Nicole, would you say? I said the reason that she um, might have, one of the reasons she might have um, held out for so long on, like, breaking up with her boyfriend is because of all those books she read and read I and, know. like, how she, like, romanticized everything and love conquers all and everything. So I said that's probably not, maybe not the most healthy thing, Megan. Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I do declare. Okay. <laughs> I disagree. So, um... Her brother did still live in the house with the mother, and he was in his 50s as well. That could mean also that his mother was just so controlling of his life as well that she wouldn't let him go out and live his own life. So he lived there, the mother lived there, and they did have um, servants because they were a wealthy family. So the brother and the servants never tried to help her because they were all terrified of Madame Monnier. Wait, how did her husband die again? They never said, they didn't say. 
But yeah, good mm-hmm. question. I mean, no, I don't think so because she would have just killed Blanche. Like she yeah. could have easily just killed her. Yeah, but what if he killed himself just to get away from her? <laughs> Maybe. Um, Thanked his own death. So while the police were raiding her home, Madame Monnier was just sitting in her living room completely calm. She done it. <laughs> well, yeah, she done it. Of course she done it. So the person who sent the letter, you think it was like a visitor or something to the house and just smelled from the room and wrote the letter? or So they actually have no idea who wrote the letter. They still don't know. Um, they speculate it could either be a neighbor or they think that maybe one of the servants told like her boyfriend or something what was going on and the boyfriend wrote the letter. Um so her mother was obviously arrested, and 15 days after being arrested, she had a heart attack after seeing an angry mob outside of her house, and she died. Too easy. Too easy. Yeah. yeah. So then, of course, her brother went to court um, because he was, you know, in the house as well. So Marcel tried to claim that Planche had brought this on herself and that she was an angry woman who was full of rage, and they believed that she was also mentally ill. So Blanche Blanche never acted violent or lashed out at any of the doctors or nurses the whole time she was after being released. Um, She was very calm and very grateful to have been saved the whole time. Um, But he claimed that only a crazy person would choose to stay in solitary confinement over agreeing to break up with someone. I agree. Yeah. But still. Um, he also tried to she claim stuck that she, to her principles. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he another, also tried to claim that she washed woman. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he also tried to claim that she never tried to escape the room and that after they locked her in there, she simply accepted her fate and decided to stay. But when the police were interviewing neighbors, um, quite a few neighbors claimed that they heard a woman shouting for the police out of the window. I'm sorry, but why were the police never called? Right? If multiple neighbors heard a woman screaming for police regularly, why were the police never called? So did the, did the boyfriend she refused to jump ever get married? Uh, they didn't say that. And um, the article did say they don't know if the boyfriend ever went to the house looking for her. Um, but even if he did, the mom would have just told him the same thing. She told everybody that she just disappeared. And like, what could he do? They weren't married or anything. You know, he was just a boyfriend. I'm the damn tower. This isn't Rapunzel. <sighs> Still. Stories like that are what made this woman in this situation in the first place. Don't yep. paint the brothers grim. That was not the reason she was in this situation. Her not the reason she was in this power situation. mom was. Yes, but she could have tried to help herself out of it by relinquishing the stupid boyfriend idea. And I mean, who knows? She might have, but the mom was obviously crazy. So she didn't, Yeah, she wouldn't have let her go regardless. She did. Maybe that's the case, but yeah. Maybe it wasn't even about the boyfriend. Maybe she witnessed something that she wasn't supposed to, and they just used the boyfriend as a scapegoat. Mm, the boyfriend was never really used as a scapegoat. To say, like, in the court, he was like, oh, she wouldn't break up with this guy, so we locked her in a room for 25 years. I mean, yeah. And he's been dead for 15 of them? Yeah, but as far as they, as far as they know, she didn't know that he had passed away. But that's all, that's all 
irrelevant. No, but I'm calling BS on them saying we kept her locked up because of she wouldn't break up with this guy after the guy was dead. They she might not have even known, known the family might not have known he was dead, but it doesn't matter. What are they going to do? Let her out after 10 years and act like nothing happened? Like she wasn't going to go to the cops at that point. They were going to be in big trouble. Why would they let her out? Yeah, but even if they kept her in there for a month, she could have gone to the cops. Exactly. As soon as they locked her up, there was no going back. She could have, she could have been saying, yeah, I'm done with him. I'll break up with him all day long, but they couldn't never, they could never let him, let her out after that. Okay. So don't be that, trying to blame romance. That's just <laughs> still not, it's irrelevant. You, you, Pretty you much. Jab at, at, at romance. I had to, I had to fight for love. Oh, okay. Well, anyways, um, back to true crime. Um, <laughs> So the brother was uh, initially convicted of, they didn't say what he was convicted of, but he was convicted. And then he was acquitted on appeal because he is, himself was a lawyer. This is the part that makes me like really annoyed is they were trying to deem that he was mentally incapacitated for 25 years, but he was a well-respected practicing lawyer. Yeah. Like, no, I I don't think you could have one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And although the, although the judges did criticize his choices, they found that a quote duty to rescue did not exist in the penal code at the time with sufficient rule to convict him. So they prop, they like, he wasn't the one that locked her up and he, I guess, under the law didn't have any obligation to save her at that time. I'm sure laws, laws have changed since then, it seems, but. Of course, after being in solitary confinement and not seeing any sunlight or anything for 25 years, they say that she did eventually lose her mind, which is completely understandable. So after she was released from the room, Blanche continued to suffer from mental health problems. She did was able to gain some weight and she but she was diagnosed with various disorders, including anorexia, schizophrenia, exhibition. I'm not going to be able to say this right. Exhibitionism. Exhibitionism? (laughs) Sure. And uh, coprophilia, which you guys might not know what that is. And it's, you know, a good thing that you don't know what it is because I didn't know what it was and I had to look it up and now I regret it. Do you want me to tell you what it is? I have a feeling I do. I have a feeling I know, but I want you to tell me. I don't want to know, but I know there's going to be like listeners okay. who know. So I'm just so if you it. don't want to know, maybe plug, ears. plug your ears. So it is the sexual arousal at the site of feces. Mm. Oh yeah, no, I was way off. Yeah, that's that's real issue. The only thing that I, I mean, back then just likes to throw mental like diagnosis around and they weren't like necessarily right, especially when it came to women and especially with like her case, they probably just didn't know what to do with her. So they just slapped some diagnosis on her. I, she most likely did have mental health issues. That would be completely understandable. I don't know if she had them before, but if she was schizophrenic, she would have been exhibiting those issues, those like issues possibly prior to her being locked up. So them saying she was mentally ill possibly could have been, there could have been some truth to it, but I'm, I'm not saying they could, they should have locked her up. I'm completely against that, but I don't know. I just, please tell me they didn't send her to like a sanatorium or something after that. So they did. 
Probably, I mean, the conditions were probably not much better at the time. So she didn't have anywhere else to go because her brother was still alive. So he lived in the house and she wasn't going to go back there. She had nothing. Um, and then, of course, they gave her all of these mental health issues, whether she had them or not or if they just gave them to her so they didn't have to deal with her. So they admitted her to a psychiatric hospital where she eventually died in 1913. And it didn't say how she died. And how old was she when she died? Um, so if it was 1913 and she was 50 when she was found, she was like yeah. 63, 62, 63. Oh, my gosh. That's such a sad story. And, like, in no way, like, do I blame Blanche. I know I was joking no. about, like, yeah, was, you know, I the mean, whole, like, Rapunzel thing or whatever. And, you know, she stuck to her guns about wanting to marry this guy. But that is crazy, sad, and inhumane. Yeah. Yes. That's all the claims of the people that did this to her. Who knows what the real motives were behind that cruelty for so long. Exactly. Like, and I didn't see, like, anywhere after she was rescued, like, what she claimed happened. I saw the brothers' claims and, like, of course, what they thought happened, but it, I didn't see anything anywhere saying, like, what she had to say about it, um, it other probably, than her being grateful for being freed. They probably never even interviewed her about it because they, after she got the label of being mentally ill, you yep. know, they're not going to believe someone that they believe is mentally ill. Yep. And... They may have called it schizophrenia, but if you think about you lived in a dark box for 25 years, like you would, your mind would start to create fantasies to yep. survive. Hope. Yeah. 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 So it is a very sad story. And the photo of Blanche when she's rescued is very haunting. Like, and I do, there is a photo of her from before she was locked up when she was younger and she was very beautiful. And just after she literally just looks like a skeleton. It's so sad. Mm. Bless her heart. It's actually really amazing that she survived 25 years here emancipated like that. Is emancipated? No. Uh, Emaciated. 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 Yeah, yeah, she was 55 pounds, and she was a 50-year-old woman. That's insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sources for this story were historycollection.com, allthatsinteresting.com, and Wikipedia. Wow. Yep. That I've never heard of that. That, that was uh-huh. a good find. Yeah, I've come across this story a couple times, and I kind of just, like, was able to find, like, the basic stuff before. So I had to kind of, like, dig for a couple, like, the all that's interesting article offered like more like quotes and stuff like that. So I was glad that I was able to find that. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. It's how sad. I just don't know how as a mom or as a sibling, you could justify treating right your family like that. Well, if your image in society is more important to you than your family is, then that's what happens. Well, I find it interesting that the angry mob formed like that's kind of like, how did the brother continue on with his life with society knowing that he did that? Mm -hmm. Like, true. I mean, in his eyes, he didn't see anything. He hadn't done anything wrong because he said she wanted to be there. That's insane. I know these a lot of these go to show like what laws didn't account for and how many atrocities and how many things were 
cleared because, oh, it didn't, the law doesn't cover that or this isn't specified. And it just drives me nuts. Like when evil is so, so prevalent and you can clearly see that this was a crime. Yeah. You could justify it in any way, shape or form, just like with the, the school of, well, we, that was a normal punishment at the time to whip people. Right. Just makes me damn the man even more. Save the empire. Yep. (laughs) Well, good job. Thanks. On that note, here's to a bright and cheery Happy New Year. (laughs) Happy New Year. I'm going to dig into this uh, delusional disorder. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Dark Chatter. Please like, follow, rate, and review. Reviews help us reach potential fans, and we would really appreciate it. Follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Dark Chatter Podcast and on Twitter at Dark Chatter Pod. We would love to hear from you. Offer us feedback. Is there anything you would like for us to cover? Email us at darkchatterpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.